Isn't that awesome? We have a Savior that will never fail. Wow. Firm foundation. Well, good morning. Yeah, some people are awake. That's okay. I hope one of you, uh, or each of you, got one of these uh, notes to track the sermon. I'm going to be flying pretty low to the ground and fast today, covering lots of material, and this will probably help uh, track where I am and where I'm going. And have you noticed that this year is flying by? It's almost mid-year already. As I thought, there's only seven more shopping months till Christmas. Um, and it remains clear to me that the speed of life is actually increasing, not decreasing. And things that are put in our life for convenience are creating chaos. I mean, I used to get letters. You remember a thing called a mailbox on a street and you got letters in it? Um, now I get emails and texts that require immediate response. And in fact, if you don't respond in five minutes, you get another one. Ever had that happen to you? Uh, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark in the text. Um, so lots of things are crowding our schedule. The question is, what are we pushing out to make room? Um, what are we eliminating that make room for all these new distractions? See, Pastor Larry spoke last week about distractions, keeping us away from our primary purpose of following Jesus. Um, what's gone in your life? Maybe it's uh, exercise. Maybe exercise time is long gone. Uh, maybe the family devotion and meal times. I mean, who has time for that? Uh, reading books has disappeared with the dinosaur. Um, it seems like everything is trying to crowd out the important for the stuff that's hectic. But does that include our time with God? Are we squeezing out even our sleep um, and excluding our time with God? Um, see, there's a saying that many of you have probably heard, God has given us all enough time to accomplish his will today. So where are we going wrong? Why does nothing seem to fit? Well, today I'm going to be talking about something that's about the preciousness of this book that we hold and the importance of this book that we hold and the incredible miraculous nature of this book that we hold. This is a treasure, people. And I don't know if our crowded lifestyle has just allowed us to forget how important it is. So today I want to be covering seven wonderful, hopefully exciting reasons why we should remember to keep this book a priority in our life. Um, hopefully this is not going to be a finger-pointing message, but a, a message that will encourage you and inspire you to say, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I've got to get back to the book. So read with me 2 Timothy 3. And we'll start at verse 13 and go to verse 17. You know, I'm used to pages turning, but now with all these phones and tablets, they should make sound effects. So at least it makes it sound like you're flipping the pages. That would be encouraging. So reading at verse 13. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Now I'm going to use these verses and this passage as, a, uh, as it were a, uh, 
a grounding place, a springboard into the rest of the message. But let me just first give you three things that I think this passage is telling us about the supremacy and the wonder of this book in which we hold. Uh, first, the, this Bible that we hold in our hands or have in our tablets, uh, according to verse 16, says it was inspired and produced, as it were, breathed out by God himself. Um, cover to cover, word for word. You see, the, this Bible that you hold in your hand is not a letter from some important worldly figure, not from a loved one, but from the creator of the universe. He wanted you to know this. Now, does this tell us everything about life? About should you take vitamins? Um, no, but he told us what he wanted us to know. And it's right here. See, and I think it's an amazing book. The fact that you hold divine words in your physical hands is incredible, is it not? I mean, John Piper had once been quoted saying, is, have you ever been half as amazed at this as you should be? I mean, if you were to describe somebody, I hold divine words in my hand. What would the world say? Most of the world would say, you're nuts. This is a book created by men. No, this is God's word. Well, the second thing he wants us to know is that this is a supremely profitable book. In verse 16, it says it's profitable. Well, I think we ought to understand something. One of the reasons I think Valley Bible Church is still here today is because we have taken God seriously in verse 14 and says, you, however, continue into the things you have learned and become convinced of. What? Those scriptures and have held on. That's what continue in means. It means you've held on to them. You've held fast. You've made them your primary focus. Valley Bible Church for 50 years has attempted to make this word of God the thing we stand on. It's our only authority for life and godliness. This is it. And so we believe very strongly that this word of God is so important, so valuable. It's key and profitable. And what's profitable? Well, profitable means it's worth your time. God is telling us right here in verse 16, it's profitable. That means it's worth your time. Did you know that God says this is going to be worth your time? Now, what other thing are you going to cram in your schedule this week that has God's guarantee of being profitable? Anybody? I don't think there's very many things on our schedule that we could say are profitable. Is watching the Warriors profitable? It's fun. I love the Warriors, by the way, so don't, don't get me wrong. I, I'm glad it's not on our fifth Sunday fellowship that they're playing at 6 o'clock tonight. I would come to the Fifth Sunday Fellowship, but I would have my DVR set, okay? Uh, but God's promising that this word is profitable. But what's it profitable for? Well, he tells us that in the same verse. It's profitable for teaching, for instructing us on life, on him, on what we should know. See, we've been asking questions as mankind forever. Who is God? How do I know him? Where did the universe come from? Where did I come from? What's my purpose? Is there meaning in this life? Where are all those answers found? It's right here. Science can't come up with it. Did you know that? Science can't tell us where we came from. Science depends on being observable. I don't know if you know that. That's a rule of science. To be called science, it has to be observable and repeatable. Well, I don't see anybody repeating creation I don't know of anybody that observed it other than God himself. That's why we come up with our best man-made replacement of that is the Big Bang. You know, there was nothing and then it exploded. That's, God, that, that's mankind's attempt to tell us what God told us in Genesis, that God created the heavens and the earth. Well, it's also in, uh, profitable for reproof. It tells us where we're wrong. Does anybody like to be told where they're wrong? Being told they're wrong is one of our, well, at least my greatest pains. I hate being wrong. And that's why I, I always ask God, why is it so often that I'm wrong then? Because I am. 
Well, but reproof means I tell you where God tells us where we're wrong. But he doesn't just stop there. He gives us correction, which means he tells us what's right, how to move the right direction. It's one thing. I mean, have you ever been scolded? That's wrong. But you don't hear the rest of the story. What's right? God tells us what's right. It's correction. And teaching and training in righteousness It teaches and educates us how we can live godly, fruitful, joy-filled lives in this fallen world, even after we're saved. See, this is a treasure of a book, a treasure of a book. And what's it supposed to accomplish? Well, it says in verse 17, so that the man of God, and this means the man or woman of God, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That means they have adequate, up to the task, everything they need. They've been prepared for every good work. Does does anybody here want to do good work for God? I do. I think some of you do too. Well, according to this verse, the way we get that equipping and readiness to do good work is by being in this book. This is the book that will train you and teach you and equip you for being ready to do the work that God said in Ephesians 2.10, he's already got planned for you and for this church. If this church wants to be fruitful and productive for God, we better be in this book. If we're not in this book, we're going to be ill-prepared. So let me just share with you, I think, seven reasons why we should be in this book. Now, I have to say first that... In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, it says that every true child of God should have an appetite, a craving for the Word of God, just like a baby has a craving for milk. Now, do you think that craving for milk in a baby is a chore? It's a task he hates doing every day, crying for milk. No, it's part of how they were wired to get what they need. And God is saying every believer has been wired to want this book. So why do I need to give you seven reasons why you should read it? Well, sometimes we lose sight and we dull our spiritual appetite with things that will never feed us. I don't know if you've ever done that, but you have uh, looking at someone who has. Why don't we get in the word more? Well, it's because we have dulled our spiritual appetite. Otherwise, the the life that our God has given us as children of God, we would be babes craving this word. But we've eaten the cotton candy of this world and we don't have the hunger. So these are seven reasons that'll help motivate us to get back to having the right hunger and to just follow the appetite that God put in us for his wonderful word that will nourish us and strengthen us and give us the ability to grow just like milk helps a baby grow. So first one, the Bible leads us to salvation and continues to save us. Let's look at verse 15 one more time. It says this, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, scriptures, our Bible, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Wow. Well, clearly this passage, we see that reading and studying and putting the Bible as an intake in our life has a saving effect on us, just like it did on Timothy. And so I would just stop for a minute and say, the Bible from cover to cover reveals to us that Jesus Christ is the central figure of all history. He's the central figure of scripture and he is the sole source of the author and the finisher of our faith and our salvation. By reading this book, if you've never met God, you want to know God, you don't know anything about God, you don't know anything about salvation, this is the book to read. Not a self-help book, not some podcast, this This leads to salvation that's in Christ Jesus. This needs to be primary. But it's interesting, he says to Timothy that he should continue on in what he's been taught, but to remember where he learned them. Uh, In 2 Timothy 1.5, it says this, 
For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure is in you as well. See, Timothy's initial training in Scripture happened at the feet of his mother and grandmother. And it started when he was in a child. He says, from childhood, you have known these things. They took it as a, their responsibility to pour Scripture into their child. Pastor Rich Rollins, years ago, one of our former executive pastors, uh, had said that it's really the home and not the church is the best and primary place to pour scriptural foundations in our family. Because no matter how good Sunday school is, no matter how good children's ministry is, and they're good, and how good our youth groups are, and they're fantastic, the primary responsibility for doing this is us. It's the home. So I guess this is the first convicting part to me. How are we doing at that? I have to tell you, I don't like preaching things that make me feel guilty. But this one does. I have to do better. Because I can easily say, my kids are in Christian school. They get an hour lesson every day from uh, Charlie Nason at school on the Bible. Uh, they come to Sunday school. They come to youth group. So I don't need to teach much at home. That's a cop-out. I'm dropping the ball. I need to pour into my own kids at home. If we had another pandemic and you cannot bring your kids, it's impossible. Will their training stop? Or will you pick up the ball and continue to pour into those in your home and those around you, your grandkids, your spiritual grandkids? This is our job according to this. Well, there's one other thing too. It says that this is not only able to lead us to salvation in Christ, but it will continue to save us. How do I say that? Well, look at 1 Timothy 4.16. It says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, Timothy. Persevere in these things, for as you do, you will ensure salvation for both yourself and those who hear you. What? Okay, we got a preacher that will be saved by what he says. Well, he's already saved, isn't he? Yes. Yes, he's already saved. So what is Paul talking about here? What he's saying is the Bible is not just good enough to save us once in time for eternity, but it will save us day to day to day in this life. It will give us courage. It will give us hope. It will keep us from harm. This is the book that will protect you through your life. It will save you from many many a harmful thing. See, we don't know how close to danger we are all the time. I think everybody here thinks they get to church because they drive really safely, but they don't know that God has actually stopped seven cars from hitting them that they didn't have any control of. We think we're good, and we think maybe that we're living this life so successfully because we're good. No, this is the protection that we have Jesus is our protection, and his word is what guards us. So what we need to see here is that this book will not only save us in eternity, but it saves us and gives us the ability to have joy and hope and peace and courage and fruitfulness and purpose until he takes us home. This is what gives us that instruction. This is what gives us that defense. This is what gives us that protection. We need to be in the book. We need to be in the book. Well, the Bible makes us abidingly fruitful and blessed. Well, let's turn to Psalm 1. Starting in verse 1, we see this. How blessed is the man who does not walk. Well, that, let's just change that up a little bit. How unblessed is the man who walks. Let me just read it that way. In the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the path of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. Wow, if you want to be unblessed, listen to the world. That's what it says. He walks in the counsel of the wicked. If you want to get off track, just listen to worldly counsel. Now, I'm not talking about your unsaved physician that says you might have cancer. You need to listen. I'm not talking about your unsaved uh, tax man or auto mechanic who says you need new brakes. 
You don't have to listen to his advice. No, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about moral and godly wisdom for life. We should not be listening to our instructions from the world. We cannot. This is where we get our instructions. So the second thing, though, is standing in the path of sinners. We shouldn't associate and hang with those that do oppose God. You'll become like them. And third, it says if you do, your third step down is you will start mocking even the things of God. And I know you'd all look at me and said, well, it would never happen in my life. Has anybody ever kind of made fun of someone who got back to the car and realized they got 50 cents more change than they should have? And they got out of the car and went back into the store and took it back. And you said, you fool. They're a mistake. What is that? Is that ridiculing righteousness? Things of God? Yeah, we could fall into the same trap. And he's saying, don't do it. Don't listen to the world's way. Don't associate with the world and hang with them as your best friends. And don't start mocking the things of God. What should we do to be abidingly fruitful and blessed? Aha. But his delight, the blessed man's delight, is in the law of the Lord. Now, his delight, it doesn't mean his chore, not his task. It's this delight. You guys know what a delight is, right? Is the word your delight? Or is it a chore? Oh, it gets guilty fast around here, doesn't it? The question is, do we delight in God's word? And what should we do if we do? It says here, and his law, he meditates. That doesn't mean speed read, does it? No, it doesn't say in his law, he speed reads and finishes 16 chapters a day. No, he meditates. He picks a part of it and lets it savor in his heart and mind. And he does that when? Well, at least for five minutes after he reads. Day and night. How are we doing? See, if we want to be blessed and fruitful, because if we do this, it says... It will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. That just means it's firm. It will withstand the storms of life. It will not worry about drought and famine. It just hangs in there and endures. And it's also fruitful. And whatever he does prospers. Would you like that promise from God that whatever you do will prosper for him? This is what the source of that promise is. God desires to make you abidingly, enduringly fruitful and profitable for the kingdom. The question is, will you meditate on his word? Wow. Well, three, the Bible renews our minds that we may know God's will and next step and have godly success. Uh, I'm going to take a look at a few verses here and then we'll jump in. The first verse I want to look at is Romans 12 too. You've heard it before. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what's that mean? I've renewed my mind with this book. I've got my mind new information. It now thinks differently. It's like it was reprogrammed. I took it back to the factory authorized location, which is the creator of the universe, and I reprogrammed my mind. And now I think like him. That's what this is about. And what does that? The word, the word of God. Let's, in Psalm 119, one of my favorite chapters in scripture, uh, beginning in verse 105, it says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light to my path. What does the lamp to your feet mean? Is that a searchlight that goes two miles ahead of you so you see where you're going? No, it's right there where you're going to take a step. This is important. This is important. Let's look at the next verse, verse 133. Order my steps in thy word. What gives us direction to take the next step? This book. If you're stepping without this book, you're going to be in a hole. God doesn't want that. You'll stumble. And that's what it says in verse 165. Those who love your law, your word, have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Gosh, do you, anybody here want great peace? I do. Do I not to not fall down? 
Oh, I, I hate falling down. Does anybody like making mistakes? I don't. I don't like making mistakes. This is the way. We love his law. And in Joshua 1.8, it says, keep the book of the law always on your lips, talking about it. Meditate on it day and night. Wow, day and night again. So that you will be careful to do everything in it and you will be prosperous and successful. See, life's path is going to be dark and unknown sometimes. You're not going to know what to do. Do you always have all the facts you need to make a decision? I don't. Um, But you know, God's given us a way to get through this dark and gloomy pathway in this world, and it's by the light of his word. And it will light your path, step by step. See, when you run to his word, he said he would renew your mind, show him, show us his will, and give us peace. Now, the question is, not do you, how much of the word do you read, it's how much do you do? How much do I do? I mean, the Bible's very clear. It's very clear on direction. If you get to a place in your life and you said, I think I need to lie to get out of this, you don't need to go pray about that. The Bible's pretty clear. He was clear, do not lie. Okay, so I shouldn't pray about that one. Okay, I want to be unfaithful to my spouse. No, I don't need to pray about that. No matter how good something else might look, that's not something you need to pray about. You need to pray about staying with your spouse, not being unfaithful. Um, How about forgiveness? That guy hurt me too bad. Lord, do you really want me to forgive him? Don't pray. Do what God says. Now, there's going to be things in life, though, that aren't clear. Should I put my kids in private school or in homeschool? Show me the verse where he'll tell you that. God is for homeschooling. You know, some churches have split over this issue. I don't know if you know that that there was a giant split because there were some that think that homeschool was the godly way and putting your kids in public school school was the worldly way and it divided the church. It's, it's, a, it's just a sad. Jesus said there, should, there was no divisions in the church, not Jew, Greek, uh, rich, poor, slave, free, uh, but we can let certain things divide us. We can let music divide us. We can let color divide us. We can let even homeschooling divide us. But what it says is if you don't know what to do, what does James 1.5 say to do? If you lack wisdom, ask God. And he'll tell you. He'll tell you what to do. Now the question is, will you wait and listen? Or do you already have your way already planned? The question is, Lord, I want to go this way. Please tell me that's okay. I don't know if you've ever prayed that way, but I think I know a few. Well, here's the deal. God cannot steer your life if you're not moving, if you're not willing to step out in faith. Let me describe. You can put little Johnny in your car in the driveway, and he can move that steering wheel all over the place, but no reason afraid he's going to crash. Why? Because the car's not moving. See, God can't steer a parked car. He can't. He can move the rudder all day on a boat. If it's not moving, it won't make any difference. God says he will order our steps by his word. He wants us to take a step of faith, and as soon as you take that step, he'll give you the next step, and then the next step, if we trust in faith and obey. Now, the question is, will you let God's word order your steps? Or will you just take off and say, rescue me from the steps I've already taken? Many of us have tried that. Uh, My mom used to tell me all the time, um, sheep, or we're all, you know, we're all called sheep, and that's not necessarily a flattering term. They're a relatively dumb animal, dirty, helpless. Um, anyway, my mom says it's, it's really uh, appropriate that God calls us sheep because there's generally not Christians, sheep, who have a black eye patch, a studded collar, and say, I'm against you, God. I'm going to go get lost today. Most Christians don't do that. What they do is they put their heads down and they follow their appetites. Oh, grass, look at that, grass, grass. And pretty soon they eat grass so long and so much without ever trying to find the shepherd, by the time they pick their head up, they have no idea where they are. How'd I get here? And I think that's the Christian life for many of us. 
We follow our appetite until we're lost. He says, no, order your steps by this word, by this book, and you will not get lost. You will not stumble. You will not fall, and you will be prosperous. You get it? So this is the great thing about the word. Let's keep going. The Bible guards us against false teaching and increases our discernment. Wow. Let me ask a question. Do you think that teaching that minimizes Christ, that maybe uh, talks about tolerating some sins, uh, weakens the doctrine of righteousness by faith alone in Christ, could ever creep into the church or into Valley Bible Church? Do you think that's possible? I think it is. If it happened to the Apostle Paul, do you think it could not happen to here? I think it could happen here. The question is, is how do we make sure it does not happen here? Well, in Genesis 3, we find out one of the ways. Satan's first recorded words to mankind were, did God really say? And Eve responded, no, God said that we cannot eat this fruit. And in fact, we can't even touch it or we'll die. The second half of that was an embellishment by Eve. God did not say that. False teaching had already crept in in Genesis 3. Basically, man had added his own rules to the process. Have we ever added our own rules on top of this Bible? Has a church ever done that in its history? All the time. You're not really a true... You smoke and you're a Christian? I'm trying to find out where that shows up. See, we make our own rules. But the question is, is what did God say? And Satan's question was right. God, we need to look at what God really said. But the question here, though, false teaching is dangerous. And it should never be underestimated. And I think even here at Valley Bible Church, with our hallmark of abiding commitment to the sovereignty and the supremacy of God's word, we cannot become lazy in guarding it or this too can happen here. If we are not able to defend something. Now, can you defend what you don't know? I don't think that's possible. How do you know when it's somebody else is saying something that opposes what you say or believe or not? You have to know the real and it's like a, an infectious disease. See, false teaching is dangerous because according to uh, Timothy, uh, Paul in 2 Timothy 2, he says, avoid worldly talk and empty chatter for it will lead to further unholiness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Anybody know that gangrene is deadly if it's not checked? False teaching will kill a church if it's not checked. So how does God expect us to check it? Does, does false teaching come in and announce itself to people? Hey, I'm false teaching. I'm cool. Like me. According to 2 Peter, I think, it says this. But there were also false prophets among you, just as there will be false teachers among you, like today. And they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Now the question is, if something is secretly introduced, that means they're trying to slip one over on you, Right? So how are you going to defend yourself? Um, I think we need to be just like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. When any, any, anybody stands up here like me or anybody else, question it according to God's word. I'm not afraid of being questioned, of having this as being my guide. Don't just trust people who are in front of a church just because they're in front of a church. There are people in TV churches all across this land that you should not listen to. How do you know that? Because you have tested it against the real and they are counterfeit. You see, the only way that false teaching will ever creep into our church or any church is for those who know the truth, don't guard it. We need to guard the truth. Now, how do you know the truth? Well, just like banks and law enforcement agencies do, how do they make sure they detect counterfeit? bills. Do they study all the ways that you can counterfeit a bill? No way. 
They study the real so intently, so long, so many hours, in so much detail that anybody that pulls something else that has an imperfection to that detail is immediately alerted. That's what we must do with the Word of God. And we cannot do that if we speed read it, we don't study it, we never open it, we don't read it. You can't defend a thing. You will be taken in. You'll look at that TV evangelist and you'll say, wow, that's pretty cool. And they're dead wrong. I mean, just we, we, we had a, a, you know, a person who was interviewed by uh, Larry King and was asked, do you believe that Jews will go to hell if they don't believe in Jesus? And his answer was, well, you know, God's merciful and kind. And I think that everybody will. What? You do not believe in Jesus Christ. You will not be in heaven. Period. No ifs, ands, or buts. There's only one name given among men whereby we must be saved, and that's Jesus. Okay? But how do we know that we are able to defend? Well, Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He says, discernment is not just knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. See, Satan will never come in here and say, you don't need to do everything that God said. He's just going to tweak one little thing. And if you're not sharp enough and you're not up on your Bible, that one little thing will get by you. But God doesn't want that to happen. That's why he wants us to read and meditate on his word because he wants to give you godly discernment, not just for the church, but for your life. This book can give you godly discernment. According to Psalm 119, I think it's verse 97 and beyond, it says, if you know these words and my word, you'll be smarter than your teachers. You'll be smarter than the elders. You'll be wiser than everyone. Why? A kid 20 years old could be wiser than everybody on the planet if he lives and abides and meditates on this book. This book can make a person wise and irregardless of age regardless of age. Well, five, the Bible encourages us with God's promises, giving hope and courage. Well, one of the greatest joys of my life, I hope it is of yours, and one of the most strong encouragements in my life are his promises. He, if he hadn't made me some promises, I would be really crushed in life. If I did not know that he was close to the heartbroken in Psalm 34, if I didn't know that he said that you will stand and I will never leave you or forsake you. You will never be on your own, son. I will, nothing will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's promise after promise after promise that God's made to us. And the difference between his promises and ours is he keeps his. We love promises. We love people to promise, I'll pick you up. But they don't. Or, or I promise to pay you back and we never see it. See, we have difficulty keeping our promises. God has no such difficulty. God will keep all his promises. And, the, and according to Peter, he said, they were great and precious promises that we got and obtained through the knowledge of him. How good is a promise that you don't know? How long will that sustain you? What will you do? If you know that someone promised to pick you up, would you seek other transportation? No, it will change your actions. If you trust on these promises, if you know that God will never abandon you, you know you can rest secure. If you know that God will get you safely home, you know his salvation is perfect. The point here is if you do not know his promises, and there are over 8,000 of them in this Bible, how many do you know? And how many do you claim? Because it's even one thing to know it and not claim it. I mean, sometimes I, I, I even have somebody come up to me and says, remember, God promised this. I go, that's right, that's right. So God's word is able to give us hope, give us courage, give us joy. Why else would you smile in the midst of a trial? I know one of our, our, our beloved people is getting near uh, death, Jackson Chan. What gives that family, what gives us joy in the middle of that circumstance? Is it because, oh, this is a fun thing to watch. This is a fun thing to go through. Are you kidding me? 
But what gives them joy? They know there's a better future. There's going to be a life again. There's going to be a meeting in heaven that will never separate us. We'll know no crying, no sadness, no sickness, no death, no goodbyes will ever be said again. That's what gives us hope. It's not the trial itself. It's the promise behind it. Well, I don't know about you, but I need his promises. I need 1 John 1, 9. I would have given up on the Christian life if I thought I had to be perfect. If once I put my faith in Christ, boy, God's paid the price for me. Now I better live up to it. And the first time I sinned, I would have quit. But God gave me a promise. He said this, if you confess your sin, son, because I know you will, I'll be faithful and just to forgive your sin and clean you all up. It gives me hope. I don't have to be perfect. He knows I won't be. He's already promised me that he has a remedy for my sin. And it's called his forgiveness. Wow. His promises are precious. I hope you know them. I hope you're claiming them. It gives you courage through this life. Well, the Bible will set us free from sin and enables us to overcome temptation. Uh, Jesus said in John 8, if you hold and know, which is hold, know and keep my teaching, my word, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Wow. Anybody want to be free? This is what sets us free. A lot of people say, well, if I'm to be a Christian, I've got to follow a bunch of rules. Uh-uh. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This sets us free. Freedom in Christ is freedom indeed. You know that you don't have to be perfect anymore. You're not bound by your old sin nature. You're set free. Well, what was Jesus' primary tool, his primary weapon for battling sin in this humanity? In Matthew 4, we read, when Satan tempted him in the desert, he didn't rely on what? Well, willpower. Uh, mom and dad's good advice. He pulled out the word of God and he says, it is written and he defeated each temptation of Satan by the word of God because he memorized it. Now you might say, well, that's not fair. Jesus is God. He wrote it. I can't be like that. Wait a minute. According to, I think it's James 1.13, it says God does not tempt us and cannot be tempted. So which means his divine nature couldn't have been tempted anyway. The only thing that could have been tempted was his human nature. And in his humanity, he memorized those scriptures. He believed what Psalm 119.11 said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How are you doing and loading your gun for the defense? You got weapons there you can fight temptation with? And I don't think Jesus had time to say, uh, Satan, wait there a minute, let me pull out my scroll and I'm gonna check out to see a nice verse I can give you. We, we think, that's the way we think. I'm gonna pull out my phone and I'm gonna Google a good verse. Temptation will not wait for you. It's not going to play fair. It's going to be evil. Sneak up on you. Hit you right between the eyes. And if you don't have something to hit back with, you might be overtaken. God's warning us. He's promising us. If you hide this word in your heart, you, you treasure it. You think about it. You chew on it. And put it in your heart. He says, it's going to be like bullets in your gun and you can shoot them right at Satan and you will overcome temptation. Don't we want that? Don't we want victory over sin? This is God's way. Now, will we do it his way? That's the question. Or will we try willpower one more time? I hope not. Well, lastly, the Bible sanctifies us. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Wow. Jesus was asking God to sanctify us and the means and the method that God was going to use it was his word. This is God's soap that scrubs us up and cleans us up. And to sanctify just means to make more like Jesus, to make holy. Jesus is perfectly holy, something we will never be in this life. 
but he's commanded us to be holy and this is his tool for accomplishing it. If you don't, I don't know, have you ever tried washing dishes without soap? How effective is that? Or even washing your car without soap. You get that tar on there and it comes right off with water, right? No. If you don't have soap, it doesn't get clean. This is God's soap. This is what scrubs us up. And if you're not using it, you're not getting clean. You're not becoming more like Christ. You're something else. Well, the other thing too is we might think falsely that this is God's job to make us ready for heaven because we read in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in us will complete it. So I'm just going to kick back in my easy chair and let God clean me up. That's not God's way. According to Hebrews 12, 14, he says this, make every effort to live in peace and to be holy. What? We're supposed to make the effort? Yes. You, I, are supposed to be making the effort to be holy. Now, let's follow along with the logic. God says he makes us holy through his word, right? We all heard that? Okay, and he wants us to be holy so how does God expect us to get holy? Get in his word. By extension, this is a logic tree. God says, I'm commanding you to be holy. I'm commanding you that it'll happen through my word. So that means I'm commanding you to be in my word. Are you taking it as a command of God or a nice to have? God says you're not going to survive. You're not going to have spiritual nutrition. You won't make it through this life if you're not in this word and you won't be sanctified. The word is his soap that will clean you up. It will make you new. It'll change you completely. Well, let me conclude. How you and I view the word of God will actually determine our life's path. If we think it's something you can throw in the dashboard of your car when you got out of church, and then you know right where it is next Sunday when you come back, you're not going to have the benefits that God says his word will produce in your life. You won't be sanctified. You won't be holy. You won't have peace and comfort and joy and strength through promises. You won't be given the ability to overcome sin. You won't have the thing that will save you in this life through, like he wanted uh, Timothy to be saved. These things are, will escape you just because we don't treasure his word. Now, I'm, I'm saying this because I want us to all be in the word, but I don't want it to be mechanical. We need to expect to meet God there, to hear him talking to you, talking to me. When I open this up, it's just like I'm sitting down at my coffee table and God's right on the other side and he's saying these things to me. And when he says something that catches my ear and the Holy Spirit prompts me, I was talking to Malcolm Lee after the first service, he says, I read just as far as the Holy Spirit prompts me and says, stop here. Chew on this verse. This one's for you today. That's more important than speed reading 12 chapters. Did you know that? I want you to be in the Word, and you need to have a plan to be in God's Word. But that plan cannot be mechanical and check the box. I mean, we have a Bible reading plan that's on our app. We have some things to hand out at the back usher station. If you don't have a plan, then a desire to read the word without a plan is a dream. You'll go out here dreaming and you'll, nothing will change. Leave with a plan. But that plan cannot be mechanical. I'd rather each one of you read three verses, six verses, chew on them, meditate them, store them in your heart and obey them than read 12 chapters. I mean, there's no gold star in heaven. No crown in heaven. I read through the Bible 65 times. Lord, doesn't that impress you? No. In fact, people in hell will have read the Bible 200 times. That's not a, that's not a mark that God calls godly. What he says is those who meditate on my word, who obey my word like James tells us to do, those are my children. And he gives us a gift. I just want you to leave here with two things. 
If you don't have a plan, please have a plan because you're missing out on getting God's nourishment and strength for this life and you're trying to do it alone. Don't do that. Secondly, I think we all have to remember, are we feeding our children, our family, those around us as effectively with the word of God as we are with food? I have to tell you, this was convicting. I, I told the first service that I hate teaching things that make me feel guilty, but that's what God's word does. It says it's reproof, it's correction, it's training in righteousness. It has that effect on me. I hope it has that effect on you, that you will want, you'll, you'll treasure pouring in something that has eternal value and profit. More than any game, more than any video game, more than any other earthly book, this book, this miraculous book, this authentic, authoritative, sovereignly inspired, incredible book has the ability to guard, protect, train, and profit us for eternity. I'm hoping you're treasuring it with me, that you will take it this week. Maybe this week is the first week you have finally said, you know what? I've been reading my Bible at 400 uh, words per minute, and... Um, I'm not getting much out of it. So let me slow down this week and I'm going to ponder. Or maybe you'll say, I never opened my Bible except here. I trust this would encourage you, that these reasons would motivate you, that the God would reinstill in you the appetite of the newborn baby that would crave the word of God because God says it will change your life forever. Father, I pray right now that you would uh, remove every obstacle that prevents us from being in and reading our Bibles and meditating on your word for the remainder of this year. I pray that through the remainder of 2022 that you would allow us to do as Second Peter said, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as he said to Timothy, through this Bible, through these scriptures, become the people who would be complete, mature, and equipped for all the good works that you have for these people and for Valley Bible Church to complete for the rest of this year. Oh, Father, may it be so. Would you change us through the power of your living word? In Jesus' name, amen.